Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This word in your ear, Mark, is brought to you thanks to NordVPN. And VPN, remind me, Mark, stands for? Tattooed upon my memory, it stands for Virtual Private Network. Uh, What is that, Mark? It's a way to keep your data safe on the internet whenever you're logging in, either at home or abroad. It's a disreputable dockside cafe, such as might be frequented by Mr Alex Gold. And VPN protects your identity and encrypts your data so that nobody can steal their identity. But there's also, <clears throat> it enables you to access the internet via servers in more than 50, count them, 50 different countries. That means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies and television programs from around the world. Do you know what I've been looking at this morning? No, go on, go on. I've been looking at via via some foreign server i've been looking at um david lean's 1942 film in which we serve in which noel coward plays the rather unlikely figure of uh, of dicky mount batten because it's based on mount batten's wartime yeah uh, wartime adventures and some would say misadventures uh, the reason i'm reading this I, I was watching that is i'm currently reading a corking book which is the story of the Mountbatten. So Mountbatten and his wife, and he was the most dashing officer in the British Navy and the best connected with royalty. And she was the most beautiful and also the wealthiest woman in London. Yeah, piping uh, hot couple. uh, Just absolutely piping hot In every respect. So piping hot that in which we serve, they do the opposite of what a movie adaptation usually does, which is they rather play down the glamour of the couple playing them in the film because there was no way they could equal the actual the actual Mountbatten's themselves. And that's what I've been watching uh, via NordVPN. Anyway... And Noel Coward in it, surely worth the, worth the ticket, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's a brilliant I film. just adore him. Yeah. So anyway, you can take advantage of a deal which where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear... Or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. 
Risk-free, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee and full details, as ever, are below. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We begin with a stackwaddy game, just a quick one. Have you got a pen and paper, Mark? I have, I have. Okay, write these... You too, viewers. Write these four down, okay? Sampha, S-A-M-P-H-A. Yep. Skepta, S-K-E-P-T-A. Little Sims, little S-I-M-Z. And finally, Scarpa, S-C-A-R-P-A, okay? Yep. One of those is an Italian sportswear brand. The rest won the Mercury Music Prize. Well, I know Little Sims won the Mercury Music Prize because it was just a couple of nights ago. So we're down to Scarpa, Skepta and Sampha. Ooh, Skepta sounds sounds real to me and it sounds edgy and it sounds a bit hip-hop. Uh, so it's down to Scarpa and Sampha. Sampha is the, what was it, a Norwegian? No, I'd say the one's an Italian sportswear Italian brand sport. and the rest won the Mercury Music Prize. Okay, Sampha is the Italian sports brand. You're wrong. They won the Mercury Music no, Prize okay. in 2017. Okay. Scarpa is an Italian uh, sportswear brand because Scarpa is apparently the Italian for shoe. There you go. That's very good. So, uh, I like yeah. it. They'd say it just you win. I thought it was an interesting reflection on the fact that so many of the winners of the Mercury Music Prize are completely forgotten a few years later. I felt rather sorry for them handing out the Mercury Music Prize this week. And I think also this week it was the Booker Prize, wasn't it? It was. It was. And, and you thought, there's no publicity whatsoever because absolutely all eyes were trained on the madness in Downing Street and Westminster. It completely. That's just, sucked all the energy from everything else. Absolutely didn't it? all the energy. From and every newspaper was kind of the first 12 pages would be, you know, some terrible shenanigans with Liz Truss. It was amazing. Uh, I tell you what, one thing I thought about uh, Liz Truss and um, the, 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 uh, the, um, the, the sacking of Liz Truss, or not sacking, resignation or whatever, and uh, and also then uh, the same week of Stephen Gerrard as Aston Villa manager. Yeah. My, my son went to went to Fulham the other night and uh, that was the last game and it was the traditional, you know, you're getting sacked in the morning. Uh, yeah. You know, chance. Poor bloke wasn't even sacked in the morning. He was sacked uh, immediately after the match and then had to get on the coach back to Birmingham. With the team. With the team. And the people who fired him. Oh, Jesus you Imagine Christ. that. And it made yeah. me think that the higher you climb, as a general point, the greater the humiliation of the fall. And and most of us just never get to know what that's like. You know, the level of pain and humiliation that people in those kind of exalted positions have to go through when that exalted position... There is no more exaggerated version of that than trust at the moment. It's absolutely It's just incredible. unbelievable. And, and I, it made me think of what I consider to be, controversial this, Bruce Springsteen's best song. Go on. Uh, this is a song which he has recorded himself, but not a very good version. The best version is done by Southside Johnny on a record called Better Days. And the song is called All the Way Home. 
And the opening lines are as follows. I know what it's like to have failed with the whole world looking on. I know what it's like to have been so sure and to wake up and find it all gone. I find I, I find those 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 lines really moving. They are. And and very few people have ever written a song about that kind of thing. And that can only apply <clears throat> to have, have seen something go wrong with everybody watching. And I've always taken it that somehow, and I've no reason to believe it, but, but this is my interpretation, that he wrote that song after the failure of his first marriage, where you may remember in the mid-'80s, at the absolute height of Born in the USA. Huge publicity. He married Julianne Phillips. Yeah. Huge publicity, you know, and they were the most romantic, fabulous couple and so forth. And then it was all over within not even a year. Yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary how quickly it went Echoes of that in various subsequent records. And I, I and I always think that must have been at the back of his mind when he wrote that song, you know. And so most of us, when we fail, when things go wrong for us, everybody isn't looking at all. You know what I mean? Whereas the, the the ceremony of humiliation involved in you know in Liz Trust, uh, you know, it's absolutely at, phenomenal because you know as everyone says she's she's no she's not a kind of historical statistic. She's a she's a pub quiz answer. It's that ah. terrible, isn't it? Somebody somebody uh, posted something which I thought was very haunting. Actually, it was kind of soft point, but it's very haunting, saying that her reading the lesson at the uh, yeah. at the Queen's funeral yeah. is akin to those big big moments in a family history, like for example a wedding, <clears throat> where somebody turns up with a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend, and that person is in all the pictures, and there yes. and that relationship only lasts about. Two months and then they've split up with them. But for the ref for the eternity the of those photographs, yes. people are looking at this picture because who's that? <laughs> and there will be footage of the, of the Queen's funeral in years to come. You think who's that reading the list? I've got absolutely. Oh, of course, yes, it's the woman who was the shortest. And it's also it's the shortest historically since prime ministers began. Oh, absolutely. And the next one up, I think, died of tuberculosis or something after 133 canning. days. Canning, yes. Was it canning? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember now. Um, so, uh, oh, it's just, it is absolutely... And uh, I may make one more ob observation that I haven't read anywhere, actually, but obviously you can't read everything about this stuff. One, the figure of her husband standing by her. Yeah. Which I thought was... I thought it was quite romantic. Actually. It was really romantic. <laughs> and, and also, I tell you what's also interesting, because, you know, you and I are old enough to remember when Margaret Thatcher was the first female leader of a, of a British political party and then was subsequently, you know, Prime Minister. It was a huge deal, wasn't it? It was a huge woman. Huge deal. And who's her husband? And, you know... And loads of focus on the children and so forth. And now we've had three, albeit quite briefly in the third case. Liz Trust, you know, it seemed to me, came into Downstream and went out with hardly any mention of her family at all. No, we don't even know the names of her kids and we don't really even know how old they are. I think she's got two daughters aged about 10 and 12. I may be wrong, but, but, it, but, but even so... Generally, generally speaking, we feel as a nation, it's not our business, really. Yeah. 
which yeah. I think is quite interesting when you consider, you know, the United States, the prospect of a woman in the highest office is still pretty distant. It is. <laughs> you know, whereas we've sort of got used to it. Yeah, and you, you can't help but feel for that family. Oh, my God, kids. yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine them going to school? I mean, oh. I it's just absolutely frightful. But uh, anyway, and it, hard though it is to extend her any sympathy on that level, on a domestic level, you can't help but feel really sorry. Oh, I, I did. listen, in any human being, in any that kind of high-profile humiliation, I, I feel sorry for them, you know. They they may have got themselves into that situation, but that doesn't stop me feeling some some twinge of uh, of, of sympathy for them. So, but do you I, feel any sympathy for James Corden? Now, that's a, that's a slight parallel, but it's like, well, it's like different area, obviously. But James Corden, that extraordinary story, which is everywhere, isn't it? About him going to this restaurant in New York and for the second time being very abusive and uncooperative about the quality of the food. He found a hair in his food, didn't he? Okay, fair enough. You he, he would be upset. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, what, what happened, we don't know. But didn't it make you feel that it would be a terrible time to be a famous person? Because absolutely everything you do is being scrutinised and being broadcast and uh, how unbearable life would be, don't you think? I think it's terrible on any level to be abusive to waiting staff. Anyway, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just wrong. absolutely wrong on any level. And the kind of, you know, do you know who I am element of it can only make it worse. Undoubtedly, that's the case. However, I think if I'm a restaurateur and, and I have a problem with this kind of thing, there's two ways to deal with it. One is to tell the person that they are not welcome to come back any longer. Yes? Yep. And I think that's the, the kind of sensible, measured way to do it. And then the other way is to take to take social to media, you know, like these people have done, and kind of try and get the world to pile on, you know, which I just do not think is right, you know. No, it's any, not right, but you can any, see how much publicity value there is in it for the restaurant, you know, a restaurant that we wouldn't be talking about otherwise. It's completely wrong. Do you know, we used to talk about, on this podcast, and not that long ago, we used to talk about and, 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 and massively send up Van Morrison for all his idiosyncrasies about avoiding the general public. Do you know, I'm starting to feel some sympathy now with these people. I, I don't know about you, but Van Morrison had this thing where he wouldn't eat in a restaurant unless he could be booked into a table in a corner uh, with his back to a wall and with two or three people either side of him so that no member of the public could approach him and come up to him and, and talk to him during his meal. And uh, I used to think that was unreasonable. I don't so much anymore. John Lennon used to famously once flew on a first class uh, ticket uh, on, a, on a jumbo to Japan, booked 16 tickets for him and his wife and his friend Elliot Mintz and Sean, 16 tickets so that every seat adjacent to them was empty so that nobody could talk to them. I can remember thinking, that's, that's unreasonable and ridiculous, but I don't, I don't know if it is now. Can you well, imagine? Well, you imagine that everywhere you go, you know, it's like that thing Stuart Lee always says about every time Stuart Lee goes out, every step of the way someone is recording. I've just seen Stuart Lee in a cafe looking miserable and, uh, yeah. and, uh, and sad. I've just seen Stuart Lee going into Tesco's. I've just seen Stuart Lee doing so-and-so. Everything you do is recorded and everything is, somebody puts some kind of, um, some kind of spin on it and uh, it must be unbearable. 
The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So two questions about the Beatles' revolver. One, was it recorded in less time than Liz Truss was prime minister? <laughs> you can do your working out. And but no, back. and I, I, I think I know this because it was they started recording it on the 6th of April. 1966, and they finished on June the 21st. But if you look at it... Oh, really? It's not far off then. No, 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 but if you look at the day to day, um, (laughs) what they did every day, a large amount of that time, they were not in Abbey Road. They were doing other things. Right. So I reckon that actually the total recording, I'm sure someone will correct me, but I think it was somewhere around the region of 12 days. It was 220 hours in total. Oh, wow. And if you imagine that's a 12-hour day, that's 18 12-hour days. It wouldn't be 12. There's only a record that I could find of them actually being in the studio for 12 days. So was Revolver recorded in less time than this trust was promised? I think it was, yes. (laughs) Which is astonishing, isn't it, in terms of actual days? So, so my second question, yeah. because a newspaper rang me up this week and asked me, well, you know, say, well, why is it the Beatles' most consequential album? And I thought about this. I'm not sure it is, really. Um, they were really interested in why, why was more fuss made about Sgt. Pepper than Revolver. Well, I can tell them that, the answer to that, because I remember this at the time. The reason so much fuss was made about Sgt. Pepper is two two reasons. One, it was the first record they made after they stopped touring. And then therefore they were they were making it over a lot what appeared to be a long period. Yeah, it was the length of time. Was it was the length of the time. The level of expectation. And all the news stories prior to its launch was, oh, they've spent six hundred hours in the studio yeah, or whatever yeah. whatever it was. And um that was one reason a huge amount of fuss was made about it. And the other reason a huge amount of fuss was made about it was the cover. I really do believe that. Yeah. It's because the cover was a kind of event in itself and was colour and was fold out and all that. But going back to, you know, Revolver and the most consequential album, I mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant record, no doubt about that at all. I don't think it is the most consequential Beatles album. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've got, I've got another. I've got another option too. Actually, but go on, I, what's yours? Mine is a hard day's night. Yeah, that's, that's, it is that's the most consequential because it's the first one that they, they wrote it all themselves. You're going to have to make an album, boys, to go with this film you're making. Okay, you're going to have to write some songs. You might have to write as many as six. Okay, we'll do that. 
and then we'll write another six for the other side. Actually, seven on the first side, six on the other yeah. side. And we will write them all ourselves. And nobody, nobody had done that before, except with the possible exception of Billy Fury, the album The Sound of Fury. He wrote all the songs, albeit not all under his own name. Sometimes he used yeah. Bob Witchley, sometimes he used Billy Fury. But I don't think even Billy Fury's, you know, stoutest uh, supporters would suggest that the sound of Fury is quite as good no, as our days. I, but I think that there are, I think there are consequential things about Revolver. Definitely, one is the cover. Actually, the one yeah. is the cover. I think that was a major departure. If you think that up till that point, most covers were still <laughs> tended to be the band. Yes, and that was a real departure, and I think inspired all sorts of people. Like the Fool would have gone off on the basis of that and gone off in a different. Uh, tangent so that's important i think the fact that their personalities are so clearly expressed on it is what paved the way for the white album the white album being really just you know a, a, a lot of it a series of, of songs written by one person using the others as backing musicians and i think it's true on revolver you look at eleanor rigby here there and everywhere got to get into my life they're so uniquely paul mccartney i'm only sleeping tomorrow never knows so uniquely lennon yeah that's and, true. and the harrison songs love to you the indian music sitar thing i want to tell you taxman very very it's very much their personalities. And that was their point where they, they really defined their own personalities as opposed to being just the group. And the other thing that everyone always talks about is the level of experiment. But if you look at the experiment, actually, a lot of them are quite conventional songs. The really yeah. big experimental songs are Tomorrow Never Knows, songs sung on one note with all sorts of, you know, McCartney's tape loops and, you know, Lennon's voice filtered through a Leslie speaker and all that. And also Yellow Submarine, actually, with all its sound effects, you know. <laughs> That's a huge, huge departure. But uh, that those are the things that lay the foundation for stuff like A Day in the Life and for Mr. Kite and stuff. But I think rock critics tend to think that's the, that's the glorious Beatles stuff. But I'm not sure if that's true, and I agree with you with Hard Day's Night, because Hard Day's Night is where they refine that template of those crisp, melodic, um, tuneful, immortal immensely memorable tunes which carried them through all all, all all the way that's what that's what I think you remember of the Beatles it's more She Loves You and Penny Lane than it is A Day in the Life really yeah. and the other really consequential record I think in a way was Abbey Road because I think Abbey Road is probably the one that people tend most to listen to it's the oh, most it contemporary is. it is it's the easiest to listen to there's none of that kind of context that you have to take in what were they trying to do at the time it's just an absolutely beautiful series of songs and uh, it's just it, it it just works and uh, it works it works today you know so I don't know a, re a revolver I can see I can see its importance but I I I think I'm with you on a hard days night I think that's uh, that's the underrated one. You're listening to the Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. We were talking to uh, Danny Baker the other day, and uh, and he was talking about how. Um, how he was selling all his records. He's got 12,000 records. He's serious. He's serious. I thought yep. he was bluffing when he first started talking. No, he's been tweeting about it for a while, hasn't he? Because he wants to move house, and therefore, if you're moving house, you've got to do something. We've got to move them somewhere. Are you going to move them to another location, or are you going to get rid of them? But it was very interesting. He was saying that he'd... Um, the magic of owning records, of physically owning them. I mean, he still plays music all the time. He tweets every night about some track that he's playing. But the whole business of actually playing them on vinyl, he said, it, it, it lost its magic. Hadn't it? He said, it said the, the chewing gum had lost its flavour on the bedpost overnight. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. And obviously, he's got some fantastically valuable records there. But he's selling them all, I think, pretty much as a job lot 
A pantechnican is going to turn up, cart them all away. At auction. Oh, we were both rather moved by it, weren't we? We just thought it was kind of... You know, just I've, uh, I felt very idea sad. Of everyone uh, getting old. Just these uh, moments in your life, these moments where you realise things are changing. And uh, I, I can remember an old pal of ours called Simon Gulliford once telling me, he was talking about these life stages, and he said, uh, I can remember a life stage where I bought a new car, and I got into the new car. He was in his mid-30s. I got into the new car, and I turned on the engine, and the radio came on, and it was tuned to Radio 2. He said, and I didn't feel the urge to retune it. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's really interesting. And Danny's gone through a, a sort of version of that to some extent, which he suddenly decided that that, that whole part of his life, collecting records, um, going to record fairs, buying and selling on eBay, it's kind of over. It's lost its magic. You see, I never did Danny. any of that stuff. I never, I never, very rare exceptions, bought anything on eBay or... Yeah. You know, never went and never been to a record fair in my life. You know, that whole world has kind of grown up, and I have I've no yeah. knowledge of it whatsoever. I'm aware of the fact that that there are far more collectors collectors now than there ever were back in the day. You know, and that that people half my age know far more about the records I got, for instance, than I would know myself. You know, yeah. I know those things because I remember them at the time, you know, I kind of remember them in context. And uh, and I've never thought of about getting rid of them, even though I kind of slimmed them down from time to time. Um, but I never thought of getting rid of them, uh, and, and they became, became even less reason to get rid of them when I started writing books. <laughs> because... Uh, you, you, you then you, you then are photographed and so forth in front of all those records, and yeah. so people think of you as kind of inseparable from those records, as if you as if you go round in the street with them on your back, backdrop, <laughs> <laughs> totally. And um, you know they're a bit of a statement and all that kind of stuff, but but still you're aware of the fact that oh god, what are you going to do with them ultimately? You know, and I've, I've said this before. My son came up here a while ago and looked at him and said, what are you going to do with these things? Yeah, make it quite clear he didn't want them. He didn't want them. And as we talked about in a recent podcast, I he think... He doesn't have any records, does he? My, none of my three children, all three of them, between them, they don't have a don't single... Don't own any records. Don't right. own a single physical record of anything, um, which is really interesting. It is. And, uh, but the thing but, I thought... But it's the idea of kind of... Turning in, you know, it's like uh, uh, talking out. It's like uh, talking, telling tales out of school here. My wife still teaches, yes. Yeah. And I, I, I don't wish to be ungentlemanly, but she's past retirement age, yes. But she still teaches. Why does she still teach? Because she doesn't want to give up. Because once you stop, you've stopped. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that just makes you feel sad. It's as, it's as simple as that. It's, true. it's not rational at all, but it's that's the way it is. You yeah. Know? And you um, want to close that particular book? Absolutely. You can't and reopen it. Yeah, I suppose if Danny is moving to a smaller house and so forth, there, there'll be every reason why you you, you can't you know accommodate that. There is, of... but there's still that element of it's. I mean, it's a very cliche thing to say, but there's such a difference between listening to a track on your computer. Or getting out the record and listening to that record, the ceremony of listening to that record in its entirety while looking at the sleeve, 
while being teleported back to the moment in time when that record was made. Those are all really, really important things. And you can't, without the actual physical vinyl, that ceremony doesn't really exist. No. And I think you'd miss it, really. Yeah. And you finish up not having the experience of listening to the whole record and sequence, just the odd track. And I don't know. I, 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 I felt it was a major statement. And also that uh, I, I felt he might miss them. I mean, Danny famously once threw away a load of singles. Do you remember that? It's recorded yeah, in yeah. one of his memoirs. Yeah. He, just, he found too many of them in, the, in a shed or something. He just went and dumped them in a skip. And then several years later, somebody rang on his door and he said, uh, he said did you ever leave any singles in a skip? Because I, I picked them out and I've got them and you can have them back. And he desperately regretted it the moment he'd done it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not getting rid of mine anytime soon as as plans currently are and also you kind of you know if you're if you like charles dickens for instance you've got some charles dickens books haven't you yeah you haven't haven't read them on a kindle have you you just haven't you know because there is over and above the pleasure of reading them there is kind of the pleasure of owning them there's the pleasure of being near them, of being aware yeah. that, you, that they're over there. You can You're flicking through them, you finding, a, finding them a phrase out. or a moment, or, yeah. or whatever. And um, I was talking to a woman actually. I was sitting next to a thing at, at the literature festival the other day. He was who was a, a big kind of literary critic and novelist and so forth. And we were talking about books. And she was asking me whether I ever wrote inside books. And I don't really. You do, don't you? I do. I make notes of them, yeah, which makes them hard to resell because I've scribbled on them yeah, in pencil. And uh, she said one of the great joys of of getting a book is finding pencil marks from some some other reader inside them. Oh, that's good. (laughs) And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I've just been reading a... Uh, a, a biography of Harold Wilson written by Ben, ben Pimlot yeah. about 20 years ago or whatever. And I borrowed it from the library. And, um, and that's got pretty much all the way through it. Uh, particular sentences underlined and then in the margin, an exclamation mark. And I can only think it's some other biographer of Harold, Harold Wilson. <laughs> you know, it's his way of... Of, of kind of raising his eyebrows at the assertion that Ben Pimlet made at some point in the book, as if to say, I think you'll find... I, uh, I would double-check your facts, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's the, only another biographer would go yeah, through yeah. a book and would do that, you know. Um, yeah, so... I, I love those little notes inside books when people have uh, just messages to the people they've given the book to. I think that's rather sweet, too. I don't know why. Just something just adds a little, like, you know, the idea that book was was uh, was so treasured in the past by somebody else. It was very rather moving, I think. It's very odd when you find a new book, a relatively new book, with an inscription inside. You know, um, you know, to 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 Peter. I do hope you enjoy this. And then three months later, you've clearly bought it in a charity shop. <laughs> so, so Peter clearly didn't read didn't enjoy it. Didn't even didn't even open it. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. took it straight down yeah. the charity shop because it was taking up too much space at home. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink, and it's like being in the pub. So, any other business? We're joined by Alex Gold. Are you right, Alex? 
I'm all right. Yeah, I'm currently sailing to Canada, to actual Canada. Sailing to Canada from America. Sounds like a, sounds like a song, yeah. doesn't it? It's very exciting. Indeed. Indeed. So what, have we, what have we been doing this week? Who We've we done a lot of recordings. We did Go a fantastic on. interview with uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore about his... Uh, well, he's, he's got this new book called The World. What a great it, title. Here it uh, is. A history book called The World. It, there it is. There it, it is. It is just... Twelve and a half. Honestly. Pages this is, it's fantastic. It's The World of Family History. And this is, uh, and so the twist is that the, you tell the story, the history of the entire world via families. And so, if you open this book absolutely anywhere, and it's in its thousands of pages, you'll find uh, somebody stabbing somebody in the back at some point, whether whether it's in ancient Egypt or you know nineteenth century France or in Westminster just the other yes, day. Yeah. It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, he says he wrote it in. Uh, he wrote it really in lockdown, didn't he? And so it's and so the the it's surrounded by by plague and and obviously the war in Ukraine. You think those themes are just on every page? Absolutely, the, nothing has changed. Nothing at all. new. Nothing new. And whatever is going on in the UK at the moment may seem like a terrible, you know, upset, but it's a little local difficulty in yeah. terms of the the history of the world. So uh, we taught him, and he's also and he's got made it. this playlist, hasn't he? Yeah. He's made this fantastic playlist. Uh, of um, which we should post actually at the end of this, of 213 songs with a historical uh, connection. It's yeah, really, really yeah. good, really interesting. And he's looking for further additions to that. Yeah, yeah. If, if you want to. So we've done it. We talked to Craig Brown as well, the satirist, uh, private eye writer, uh, reviewer, columnist. Absolutely fantastic. Very funny talking about comedians too, just how extraordinary they are. The lives of Tommy Cooper. The lives of uh, Kenneth Williams, you know, all these guys. Also very good on band leaders, wasn't he? He was talking about how, you know, being a band leader, you have to be pretty ruthless. And, uh, you know, this wonderful story about Bruce Springsteen stopping people playing table tennis backstage. Do you remember that story? Got rid of the table tennis table. Got rid of the table because, yeah, I don't know, because they were late on stage one night or something like that. And the kind of ruthlessness that you require if you're going to be Mick Jagger. Or, Bruce Springsteen. had really good theories about, about Keith Richards versus Mick Jagger, too. And thinks yeah. that Keith Richards is a bit of a fraud. Quite good. <laughs> quite good stuff. It's and the other person we should mention, I think, is Jackie Abbott. There's a great... Um, word in your attic with Jackie Abbott where she talks about people don't tend to do this that much they tend to talk about music in terms of stories and anecdotes oh I remember the time I went to see you know the specials at the music machine or whatever but she talks about music as a kind of soundtrack as a cinematic soundtrack there's a lovely bit when she talks about being I don't know I think she's in her early teens and she remembers uh, looking out her window at the lights of St Helens up near Liverpool and listening to the Cocteau Twins and it's just the most beautifully described Beautifully well-expressed uh, yeah. uh, monologue, soliloquy. It's really worth hearing, the Jackie Abbott thing. Jackie Abbott, she, of course, of Beautiful South. And the story of her joining the Beautiful South is a very, very good story, too. It's great. It involves potatoes. It does. Um, and uh, so that's all there on YouTube. And don't forget, as ever, you know, if you're following us on YouTube, make sure you subscribe and, you know, and like and so forth. Because all those kind of things and also, really make a difference. click the Go bell. On. Click the You'll bell. see a little bell come up on your mobile phone. If you watch YouTube on a mobile device, when you watch a, one of our many videos, you'll see a bell come up. You click that bell and you are automatically notified when a new one appears. It's a good thing to do. All that kind of thing is, is very much appreciated. And if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, and why not, go to patreon.com slash word in your ear. 
for details of how you can do that. Uh, what else have we got to talk about, Alex? We've got a we've got a bit of a Christmas social coming up for our uh, Patreon supporters. Go on. Yes, put November the fourteenth in your diaries. Yeah. Um, and we'll be announcing that in due course, but that will be a Patreon only event. So yeah. if you're not signed up to Patreon already, make sure you do that. Now's your chance. Uh, Now's your chance. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs>